everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have returning to us, Jared Adams. How you doing, Jared? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Uh, so Jarrett is formerly incarcerated, wrongly convicted, and now working as an attorney helping others that are in a similar situation. And uh, he's working on a pretty interesting case out of Virginia uh, where, where two folks were uh, wrongly convicted um, by a judge after a jury acquitted them. Now, how does that all work? Uh, it, it, it works in our screwy justice system, David. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense at all. And the way you explained it is exactly what happened. I mean, these guys were tried um, as, as drug kingpins with, with no proceeds, no drug recordings, no paraphernalia, nothing. Um, and they were also charged with their drug conspiracy resulting in the death of an officer. And it was outlandish from its start of the allegation. Um, the jury in the federal court found them not guilty, but this was after they had initially pled in state court thinking that they resolved the entire matter. And so just to take it a step back so people understand, they were initially charged in, in state court. They're facing the death penalty. They have lawyers who convince them that if they plead to one being uh, Ferran, accessory after the fact time served, and another being Terrence to uh, a manslaughter that resulted in five years, that they were resolving the case this way. Kicking and screaming, David. They take these guilty pleas, but they, they kept telling folks, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. They go and they're, they're tried federally now because the family is upset and the family wants justice as they should want justice, but they were wanting justice against the wrong two people. Um, and they're tried federally. The jury in federal court hears all the evidence and they find them not guilty of the murder, but find them guilty of one drug count. Um, and from that point is where the crazy fork in the road took place where the judge could have sentenced them to the 10 years uh, or so that they were facing, but he instead opted to enhance their sentence to life based on a Supreme Court ruling called U.S. versus Watts. And how does that work? 
Well, David, it works as crazy as it sounds. A jury finds someone not guilty. The judge orders a sentence in hearing. And then the judge is able to enhance a person's sentence to life based off of accused or acquitted conduct, meaning that it doesn't have to be true. It could just be alleged by the government or you could be half found to be found not guilty of it. In this instance, they were found not guilty of the, the officer's death, but they had pled in state court. So the, the judge used the state court guilty pleas to enhance their sentence to life, even though they had just been acquitted of the murder. So, so this isn't a double jeopardy issue so much as it's a sentencing issue. Well, it's really, in my opinion, it's a, it's a, an abuse of our constitution issue. You know, if we have the, the rights afforded to us under due process, and we go in front of a juror of our peers, they decide our fate only for a judge to say, no, I heard what they said, but I don't agree. Here's a life sentence. Well, that robs due process of its very meaning. And so when you think about it in that aspect, um, we have both the sentencing issue on how they were able to do it, but also this, David, they're not guilty of selling drugs. They were never drug dealers. Everyone down in the town, even in the state court, was saying they don't know where the feds came from with these drug charges, right? But I know where they came from, David. They came from the same place that you see in all of these inner cities where they allege a drug conspiracy. And all they have to do is empty out, you know, the, the, the lockup tank of people wanting to come home. And they'll say they bought drugs from this person and that person with no evidence to support other than their testimony in exchange for a sentence that will release them. That's exactly what happened in this case. And so our efforts aren't just to attack the fact that they were sentenced to life based on something they had to do with, but also that the, the, the AUSA in this case, who's now a federal judge, sanctioned the wrongdoing of agents who created a drug conspiracy only to use that as a vehicle to retry the case of the police officer. So at this point, what is the recourse? Right now, what we're doing is this. We're waiting on a decision right now from the Virginia Supreme Court. And the Virginia Supreme Court can order that, well, first of all, they can deny it, as you know. But the other two options is they can grant the petition outright and grant Terrence, you know, his actual innocence. Or they can order an evidentiary hearing, which will allow us finally to be able to call witnesses, piece everything together, and show the court what really happened. The only time, David, they've ever been in court with an opportunity to prove their case, they were found not guilty. And that was in federal court. When did you argue before the uh, Virginia Supreme Court? So we argued before the, the Virginia Supreme Court on November 2nd that we argued the oral argument. So now, you know, we're waiting on uh, a decision now that would give us the right, you know, to complete the process, you know, and, and put every, this thing, you know, the best analogy I can use for this case is, you know, I've been working on this case for about six and a half, seven years. 
And it is purposely a thousand piece puzzle with the pieces scattered amongst the table and on the floor on purpose. And it's done that way because when it's put together, it leaves no room for mistake about what happened. This was the intentional, deliberate framing of Terrence Richardson and Ferran Claiborne for the murder of an officer that might not even be a murder. It might be a suicide. But because they haven't given us what we needed to put this together, no one would never know. And here's the last thing I want people to think about. How in uh, a country with the political climate of support and back blue, no one is doing just that to find out who killed an officer on duty. They, you know why? Because if they back blue and put forth all their efforts to find out what happened, then they would ultimately come to the same conclusion that I have for over the last six to seven years. Terrence and Ferran had nothing to do with this case. Weren't there, didn't plan it, had no knowledge until after, like the entire community in Waverly, after the fact. But yet they sit, not guilty, serving life. Wow. So, so what arguments did you make to the Supreme Court? The arguments we made to the Supreme Court was that um, you have an appellate court ruling that Terrence and Veron's attorneys were not diligent enough at the time of trial to present the alibi evidence that proves that another person was, was, saw, was seen running from the scene. And that's not what these statutes were, were intended to do. These statutes were intended to um, give people who have actual factual claims of innocence an opportunity to prove that or disprove it. And the court, the appellate court went out of its way to not allow for them to have a day in court. And I believe this is because of their false trust in the attorney general who doesn't wanna know, or should I say doesn't want the public to know what really happened in this case. Um, and what was the counter argument? The counter argument was that they pled guilty the end. Not that they did it, you know, and that's that's concerning. Well, we, we know that a sizable percentage of the people that have been wrongly convicted pled to uh, to that conviction. So, I mean, yeah. it can't be a compelling argument, can it? You know, uh, it depends on who's hearing it. And like I said before, look, David, I'm not, I, I do this way too much to be a conspiracy theorist, right? What I'm telling you is this. When... When folks don't put forth an effort to find answers to a lingering question, it's because they already know the answer. 
it's, it's no different than this. Why would I go do an audit of myself when I already know I'm not keeping the books right? It's no different here. You know, why are they fighting so bad to keep us away from an evidentiary hearing um, to call witnesses? Why? What kinds of questions did the judges ask? Play it so you can hear it. One of the judges asked me what was wrong with the officers taking the one witness to an officer's house and not the police station or not the prosecutor's office. He, he actually asked me what was wrong with that, right? So everything that 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 understands what transparency is wrong with that. Everything. So that would lead you to believe that the uh, the judges are are, are not going to be on your side on this. That wouldn't lead me to believe that because that's one or two judges, you know, who are asking crazy questions. This was a panel full of justices. So what's your overall take on the hearing though? My overall take is that uh, we're hopeful that they give us an evidentiary hearing. When do you expect a ruling on that? We're hoping for a ruling early in the new year. Our desire to preserve finality, you know, you know, over justice is just mind-boggling, man. You know? May it please the court. Good morning. My name is Jared Adams and I represent Mr. Terrence Jerome Richardson. The Court of Appeals decision rewrites this court's clear precedent on when an attorney meets the diligence standard and it ignored this court's holding in Dennis, which mandates the court to order an evidentiary hearing when the record is ambiguous or inconsistent. There is no dispute that the record in this case is unclear on the extent of Richardson's counsel's efforts to speak with who we now know was the only sole eyewitness in this case. What is clear is that law enforcement withheld three critical pieces of evidence from Richardson's counsel and also the Commonwealth. An eyewitness statement, a photo lineup, and an anonymous 911 tip. They all identified the same suspect, not Mr. Richardson or his counsel, Mr. Claiborne. To consider diligence in this case, is to know the timeline of events. It's, it's hugely important in this case. Officer Gibson is shot. He gives a dying declaration of a description that does not match Mr. Richardson. It does not match his co-defendant, Mr. Claiborne. There's a 10-year-old eyewitness, the only eyewitness who was known to the authorities minutes after the call comes in and authorities respond. This 10-year-old eyewitness is not taken to the police station, She's not taken to the prosecutor's office. She is taken to the home of another law enforcement officer where she is grilled about what she saw for hours. She gives a statement. After she writes the statement out, she also is subjected to a photo lineup twice, all in this same officer's house. What's wrong with that? I mean, you, you, the tone of your argument is like something's wrong with that. They're doing something wrong. That sounds like that's just police work. Judge, what's wrong with it is that 
they withheld this information from okay, the start. Okay, that's a different issue as to whether or not in the police house or the police station or down the street at the coffee shop. Well, why, why, can't, why can't there be transparency, Your Honor? Why can't there be transparency in that? If, if this child witness is the only eyewitness in a case, the proper place to conduct an investigation would be the authorities, would be the police station, or it would be the prosecutor's office. And again, when you look at the timeline, after, after this interview of this witness, after the police statement, after the photo lineup, Mr. Richardson is charged after there's a roundup of young black men in the area who fit the description that Officer Gibson gave, someone with dreadlocks. And after this roundup is where Terrence Richardson and his co-defendant, Ferran Claiborne, become suspects with nothing to support besides the statement of an interested person named Sean Wooden, who had everything, everything to gain in providing this false statement. After this statement and after the charging, there's a 911 call that comes in. The 911 call was anonymous, and I want the court to understand that we are not offering the 911 call as evidence, but more so as evidence of the fact that the police were bent on withholding anything that was exculpatory to Mr. Richardson and Mr. Claiborne. The 911 call comes in, defense counsel is hired. Mr. Boone hires an investigator. The investigator is going through all of the evidence that is known to, to the defense, and he discovers that the prosecution has named a child witness, the same child witness, on a, a, a witness list. That's all they know. They don't know anything else other than that the prosecution has named this child witness. Then there's a, a point in time in which Terrence Richardson and his co-defendant, Ferran Claiborne, receive a bond. They're bonded out and they're accused of killing an officer. At the point that they are bonded out is when some open file meeting took place between the Commonwealth and the defense attorney in this case. The defense attorney reasonably relied on the open file that that was all the evidence in the case before he agreed to advise his, count, his client to plead guilty. Can I ask you this? Gay was subpoenaed before trial. Was there any effort to talk to her and find out what she's getting ready to say? Absolutely, Your Honor. The, the comp, Mr. Boone, Richardson's attorney, hired an investigator. The investigator went to make contact with the victim, with, with, the, with, the, with the witness. There's, the record is inconsistent and unclear as to the extent that the investigator made. We don't know if he made one attempt, three attempts, four attempts. What we do have is a document from the investigator to Mr. Boone where he's telling Mr. Boone, hey, look, I want to go make contact with this witness. Her parents are not making her available. And, and I want to be clear also, Your Honor, this evidence argument is not about the witness per se. It's about the statement. It's about the photo lineup. The witness would never have that in her possession. And I think that it's, it's too far of a leap to believe that if counsel would have gotten to this witness, that this witness would have had a copy of that police statement or this witness would have had, you know, this photo lineup. This record is so inconsistent on a lot of points that could have been and should have been cleared up by the order of an evidentiary hearing. It isn't clear at all, Your Honor, in terms of the subpoena, if it was even a given to defense counsel. Why don't you give me a couple of uh, closing thoughts about this case and what it means for justice and what your clients have gone through. 
you know, this this has been a lot for for them. This has been you know six seven years. You know, I've been working on this case, but they've been in in you know this you know like this political injustice for well over two decades. I think that this case is is, is a case that's even more difficult because it's one thing to argue that you're innocent and you should you should be home. It's a whole other thing to argue that you're innocent and the response is not that you are not innocent, it's that you didn't make the argument soon enough. That's a problem. It truly is. My final thoughts are, um, the sooner minorities work together on these issues, the sooner we become the majority on these issues. Thank you for always giving me a platform um, to say my few cents. Thank you, Jared, for joining us yet again uh, to uh, talk about this very interesting and very troubling case. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Jared Adams. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.